We want to begin this morning with a new study uh, that I'm uh, working up on the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I got, uh, I'm always uh, looking for some kind of uh, inspiration to uh, minister and teach on, and so I got a little flyer in the mail. It was a reprint of uh, something that a, an old teacher had done about a, a two-page little flyer, but what it had in it was uh, some uh, words, and these words uh, with about a paragraph with them uh, on the various facets, and the, it was entitled The Precious Blood. That I got inspired on that uh, because I felt it would make an excellent Bible study, and so I've worked up, and we're going to move through this in about eight studies, hopefully, uh, and get through this. I want somebody to get for me the First uh, Peter one nineteen, and we're going to use this as our key scripture. If Nick will get that for me, First Peter one and nineteen. We're going to use this as our basis scripture, and then move through several facets that will help us to understand why the blood of Jesus is precious. So precious uh, has meaning. It means rare. It literally uh, means an item or uh, something that uh, is uh, precious. And to be precious, it would have to be uh, in short supply or totally unique or one of a kind and uh, uh, something that hadn't lost its value or would lose its value. I uh, saw in the newspaper, you probably saw this, that, uh, about Bill Gates's uh, new home. He's been building this, and so uh, it's 40,000 square feet, a little uh, humble little pad up in... Uh, up in uh, the Seattle area, and it cost him $50 million to build, has all kinds of different things that I won't bother you with, but that figure doesn't include the tens of millions of dollars uh, that he spent on technology to transform his home into something unique. So most of this world uh, and this generation, when we talk about something that has value, uh, immediately they, th- they think of uh, either precious stones or precious metals or handfuls of money. Isn't that right? This, is, this generation is a materialistic generation, and it immediately relates to something that is material as, uh, as, a, as a judge or a standard of value. I was reading in uh, Princess Di, I think, uh, uh, the, the, day, the night that she, she died in this tragedy, that uh, the uh, uh, Dodi Fayad had given her a ring... Uh, that was uh, that cost him two hundred thousand dollars. Now that's a bit of cash, even in nineteen ninety-seven, right? Now, if you had two hundred thousand dollars, just think of this: you could buy a house and never pay rent the rest of your life. That excites almost everyone in here, <laughs> right? So uh, we think of that. Uh, when we start thinking about value, we naturally relate to that because so much of our life revolves around trying to uh, make a living and stay afloat uh, financially. And so then we read about Michael Jordan, who signed for one year and got $33 million just to play basketball one year. That's obscene. So... When we begin to think of things of value, then we have to lock into what God's Word says. Because, because the, uh, the difficulty is uh, that money and true value has no relationship in our generation. True value and money has no relationship of any kind. And so we want to lock in on God's Word and something of spiritual value. First Peter 1.19 
is a uh, such a tremendous, tremendous scripture. And I want to tell you, I'm excited about teaching this class. First Peter 1.19. But with the precious blood of Christ. Now, we read that, and we just kind of pass over that. We're not ignorant of the blood, especially in this congregation. Uh, But uh, uh, I'm uh, very uh, hopeful and very confident before this class is finished. You're going to be excited, and you're going to be tremendously blessed and encouraged. I'm moving through several uh, just simple stages, but each of these will help you to get a handle on why the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord, is precious. I need uh, several scriptures just for a moment. I need Leviticus 17.11. Somebody would like to get this for me right here. Just hold that, Leviticus 17.11. I want uh, Genesis 3.8 through 10. Somebody would like to get that for me. Philip, I want uh, Genesis 3.23 and 24. Somebody would like to get that for me. Uh, uh, Robert Chalmers, I want Genesis 4.13 through 16. Uh, This is Dennis Halverson. All right, so the first word I want to lock your mind in on is the word atonement. And the blood is precious because it's the blood that makes atonement. And so I want to uh, 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 read this scripture, Leviticus 17, 11, and we want to talk for a few minutes about that. All right, it says that it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Now, uh, we want to work through this word atonement and come to discovery about what it really means. First of all, we want to talk about the separation of God and man. Uh, I think it was uh, Milton who uh, wrote uh, the drama that's uh, been, uh, uh, been done in the theater, Paradise Lost. And this is coming from a book, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, there are other books that, uh, that carry this uh, thought. Uh, one of these is The Great Divorce and various themes that uh, have depicted and have uh, uh, laid out for us the great separation between God and man. The Bible gives uh, uh, this drama, uh, works it through. Uh, this is the great gulf that is fixed between God and man. Or in other words, here's man. Man is created to have fellowship with God. Man is created to have a a unique position with God in his eternal creation, and man falls. Man sins. He's uh, created to be a joint participator, a joint partaker. He uh, disobeys Adam, our our father, Eve, our first mother, uh, father and mother, disobeyed God. And in that moment, there was a gulf uh, that became fixed between God and man, and this is a result of man's sin. Lock that in your mind, because this will help you to understand the word atonement. We want Genesis 3, 8 through 10, if you'll read that for us. And I heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Okay, here is uh, God's creation. Uh, God has given him instruction. You will not eat uh, of the tree of the knowledge of good or evil. The day that you do that, you're going to die. Now, if, if you, uh, just a cursory reading of the scripture, we know that the moment they partook of that uh, fruit, they didn't drop down dead and there was not a physical cessation of life. Isn't this correct? Everybody recognizes that. But something desperately did happen. And what did happen was immediately God and man were separated. 
There is a gulf between God, who is the creator, who created man for eternal destiny and eternal purpose, uh, and man uh, who uh, is... Uh, uh, has inheritance and position, there was a great gulf that was fixed, uh, and this happened in that disobedience. So immediately the result of sin is that God and man were separated. God said, the day that you eat of this, you're going to die, and this death is, first of all, a spiritual separation. Out of that spiritual separation then came physical death, disease, first of all, sickness, which is incipient death, okay, and the curse that came upon a man in that separation from God. Genesis 3, 23 and 24, give us a little added detail and to help our minds lock in on that. Okay, here we have a little added detail. Uh, you remember that uh, God uh, comes on the scene with Adam uh, he uh, is, uh, right from the beginning, began to work uh, the, the benefits of atonement. Uh, this is the eternal plan from the foundation of the world. Uh, slays the animals, covers them with the skins, uh, and has some form of relationship, uh, but uh, in, a, uh, in a sinful state. Here then is Cain. We're going to read a little more about that in a moment. Cain is banished because of the murder of Abel. And God makes sure that he's separated not only uh, in the fall and the curse, but also there's a further separation uh, that is worked out because the result of his sin and the murder of his brother Cain. Genesis 4, 13 through 16, give us a little insight uh, that will help us understand this separation between God and man. Okay, I got ahead of myself. This was Adam and Eve, and the first and the second is Cain. So we find this result. So this means now, let's think about this for a moment. This means that the benefits and the blessing of God, which is intended for mankind, man's the crowning glory of his creation. Man is the aim and the objective of his creation. He has uh, blessing, he has purposes, he has all these things that are a provision. Uh, he, as he put them in the garden, he said, you can eat of any tree of the garden, uh, but this one is my portion. I've, I've reserved that to myself. That's mine. You're not going to touch that. And every provision of man was made. He had dominion. Uh, he had dignity. He had authority. He was, uh, uh, he was commanded to keep it. He had power with God. And all of these are man's, but these are not going to be available now to him. Uh, he's not going to have these because he doesn't have God's presence any longer. To be separated from God means you're not going to have God's presence. Uh, and uh, uh, because where God is, this is home for man. How many of you have ever uh, been really separated from home? You know, I li uh, my wife and I pastored in Emmett, Idaho one time, and the most astonishing thing is there are people who lived in that little valley. There was probably 3,500 people there had never or only once or twice ever been out of that valley. This is astonishing to us. So if you've ever been really separated from family and friends and home, you understand uh, some of the feeling uh, there, but not completely. I remember uh, years ago I was, uh, uh, I was uh, stationed in the military in Guam and the Marianas Islands. 
And uh, this is not in a wartime. This is in peacetime. Uh, uh, and then the Korean War broke out. But this is so foreign. This is, you know, when country boys get separated from home, there's an awful longing and homesick. Can you say amen? And so we were so homesick that I used to go down to the Charlie Corn PX, they called them. Uh, they all claimed they were owned by General Douglas MacArthur. I don't know if that's so or not. But every military base had uh, PXs, and they were always Charles S. Corn uh, uh uh, PXs. And so they had a little restaurant in there, and we could go down, and for 50 cents, we could get a place of a plate of sliced tomatoes. I want to tell you, this was like heaven. This was the greatest luxury that we, because it reminded us of home. Not like the chow hall. Chow halls, if anybody's ever been in the military, all the same. They can take beautiful food and make it, uh, make it all taste the same. It doesn't matter if it's a T-bone steak or whether it's spaghetti. It all tastes the same thing. They can ruin anything. And so... And so this was a wonderful, wonderful experience, and this is a longing for home. We could just go down, get us a, a little plate of sliced tomatoes for 50 cents, and on payday, this was, remember, we're only getting 21 bucks a month, three slops and a flop, that's all we're getting. And so it's not like the volunteer army today, the, the pretty boys that uh, are being given everything, that the minute a bullet flies, they run for their life. This is, this is back in the days of military when folks believed in America. And so this was a great uh, luxury because we were separated from home. Uh, and it didn't matter how much time off you had. didn't matter money. didn't matter different uh, 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 status and so on. This was not home. This was not home. I remember uh, when I went to boot camp, uh, I don't... I'd seldom ever been out of Prescott in my entire life. Enlisted in the, in the U.S. Air Force, got on a train, went to Wichita Falls, Texas. If you've ever been to Wichita Falls, Texas, uh, it's like being in hell. I used to look out the barracks window, and uh, you could look out, and as far as you could see, there's not one tree or mountain. It's desolate. It's awful. I'd look out the window and you could almost you could almost uh, hear a dog howling. You said, "Whoa!" I mean, it was awful <laughs> because I was so homesick. When I returned from Guam and uh, we came, I was uh, gone from America 21 months. And I want to tell you that when when we came in sight uh, of San Francisco Harbor and the lights came, I wept. Because I was coming home. Hallelujah. All right. This is just the reason I'm saying that. This is just a feeling of why mankind is in such a desperate condition. He's not home. God has created him for his presence. God has created mankind to fellowship with him, to be joint participator and partaker with him. And until man is home, he will never, never be at rest, he will never, never be at peace. You can pursue all you want to. You can make money. You can make fame. You can carry the material substance. You can uh, indulge yourself in drugs. You can indulge yourself in illicit sex. You can uh, indulge yourself in recreation and pleasure and sports. You can do all that. But until you're at home with God, you will never be satisfied and you'll never be at rest because you'll be separated from God. This gives us now a little bit of feeling of what this word atonement is going gonna, is gonna to mean. Because the only way that God and man can be one, 
This is what the word atonement literally means. If you lock in your mind, it's at one moment. That's the best way you can, re- you can, you can uh, remember that, is at one moment, is through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only way. There's a great gulf fixed between God and man. And the only way that man can be at home is through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I was uh, trying to uh, thrash my memory and remember uh, Evil Knievel. Anybody ever remember Evil Knievel? Uh, I think his last, wasn't his last uh, jump over Hell's Canyon, wasn't it? Wasn't that what it was? And it, it, uh, it did major damage to Evil Knievel. He found out that men aren't supposed to jump over canyons, amen. That, that that gulf is too great. And I don't remember ever hearing from him again. If it was, it was very brief. Uh, uh, but he's the guy, I think he attached a rocket to the back of his car <laughs> and sailed off into it, but didn't make it. And... Uh, and bad things happen to evil Knievel. This is, a, uh, this is like joining the first church of the Frigidaire and hoping you're going to get reconciled to God. And so uh, here's, here's the problem. The problem is that man is separated from God. There's a gulf that's fixed, and this, uh, uh, this uh, gulf is too great for anything to bridge that gulf that will bring man into the presence of God except the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So we're going to share that scripture again in a moment. I want uh, uh, Luke 16:26. Somebody like to get that for us over on this side. Uh, Mike Solano, uh, Don Galati, will you get for me Genesis 4, 3 through 7? Uh, Pete Baker, will you get for me uh, Exodus uh, 30, verse 10? And uh, Catherine, will you get for me Exodus 32, verse 30? I need Hebrews 9, 1 and 8. Somebody over in this section maybe. Hebrews 9, 1 through 8. Loud and clear voice. It would be uh, Brenda Martin. Okay, so let's work through this for a moment, uh, because there's a great gulf fixed, and we're not going to cross that gulf save by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It's an interesting uh, scripture that comes to us uh, out of Luke uh, 16. This is the rich man in hell. Uh, I'm going to preach on hell. I'm getting inspired one of these days, and, and uh, uh, the title is going to be uh, uh, The Place That People Are Dying to Get Into. Or uh, uh, other titles that might come to my mind. So, uh, uh, what I read this morning, Global Barbecue. Maybe that would be the one. So, <laughs> so here's a wonderful picture that we have that's going to give us a little insight in Luke 16, verse 26. All right, here's just to give a, just a little uh, uh, blip without going into the di- dissertation. Uh, here's uh, uh, those that are righteous dead, those that are unrighteous dead. The rich man is in hell. Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. Lazarus begins to cry out, uh, Father Abraham, have mercy. Send Lazarus, he may cool uh, the tip of my tongue. Dip his uh, finger in water and cool the tip of my tongue. It's burning in this flame. I'm tormented. And the word comes to him, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed. Here's the picture of the separation of God and man. Without going into all the doctrinal dissertations and theological concept, we just leave that at that, and, uh, and we can come back to that at another time. So... What makes this at one this atonement, 
is a blood sacrifice. Read for me Leviticus 17, 11 again. Who did I give that to? Anybody? No, I didn't give that. Okay, who had it before? Who had it before? Anybody? Would you read it for me, Carol, if you have it there? Leviticus 17, 11. Alright, here's one of the key scriptures of the entire Old Testament, but we see this working through as we'll uh, take time to think about this in a few minutes. It is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Now, this is a powerful scripture, this is a powerful imagery, and this is a powerful statement. In the Old Testament scriptures, just to give you a, a little bit of panorama, you remember that uh, it starts out, uh, moves on through... Uh, 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 Noah, one of the first things that Noah does when he steps off the ark, he builds an altar, sacrifices on that altar, and upon that altar is going to be blood. We move on into Abraham. Uh, Abraham is unique as the father of faith because of the many places he went, and every place he went that is significant at every turning point uh, is he, Abraham built an altar. Now, these altars were not simply piles of stone that are simply going to be there as memorials and markers. These are places where he sacrificed to God because the foundation and the principle of redemption is atonement at one moment. Rob uh, Kennard. No, I don't think so. No, I pondered that myself when I was uh, working out all my theology as a young uh, convert young minister. No, I don't believe so. But he obeyed God. You see, righteousness comes by faith. Faith is taking God at his word. And uh, even you, you, you know that you understand many things now that you embrace simply because God said it was so as an early convert. Isn't that correct? You just simply said, I, I don't care. I just believe God. All right, I do not believe that he did, but he, by faith, moved in what God told him to do, and the revelation comes out of that. That's why he's called the father uh, of the faith. No, I do not believe that he understood the ramifications of all he was doing. He simply understood God had said, this is what I want you to do, and he was going to obey God. And God said, because you believe me, you're a righteous man. And this is all through Galatians and Romans that gives him that imp imp imputation. But I don't think he understood the, the revelation because, he, because even, even the disciples of Jesus didn't understand it. And he's telling them over and over again, this, I'm, I'm going to die and I'm raised from the dead. Oh, yeah, okay. I'm going to die and I'm raised from the dead. Okay. So one of them comes and says, he's risen from the dead. So it's impossible. Can't do that. <laughs> and so I do not believe that he did. But he, but he, he did. And it simply says that he believed that if, even if he killed him, uh, God was able to raise him from the dead. He believed God because God had given him promise. The reason it says that is God said, uh, this is going to be the heir, and he believed that he's going to be the heir regardless of what he's going to do. That's, uh, I, it's just that simple. That's, that's how I worked it out years ago because I've, all these things were swirling in my mind uh, as to how much they understood, and I don't think they understood at all. Many of the things that we understand, we embrace simply and take. 
But they had faith. They believed God. That's what faith is. Twister. That's the trick. <laughs> the only way you can know is your heart's right. You listen carefully to what I preach about this morning. That's the only way you can know is by faith. If your heart's right, you have a sensitivity. If your heart's not right, you're in a no-man's land and uh, it's dangerous territory. That's what the religious world's made up of, people whose hearts are not right that are trying to be religious. That's what's caused the chaos. It really would. That's Yep. Yeah, but the, but see this is what at one month's all about is that there's a relationship with God, a reconciliation that you have confidence and you trust because you have a relationship with God. It really helps to get a relationship with God, folks. Your own relationship with God. It really does help. Then when the winds of doctrine blow, blow through, then when kinky stuff comes and all kinds of dingbat things begin to happen, your spirit says, I don't understand all this, but there's something's not right here. Okay? All right, you're leading me astray. We don't want to go off on that tangent this morning. So we got uh, Leviticus 17, 11. So we have the Old Testament, the history, one of the uh, altars and sacrifices. And so remember now uh, that sin has separated man from God, and because of that, he does not have the presence of God. He does not have the presence of God, and all the curse is working out upon him, the benefits and the, uh, and the uh, uh, beneficent uh, provisions of the Creator, not his, because sin has separated. Not a single case in the Bible where atonement for sin has been made without the shedding of blood. See, the gulf is not bridged without blood. That's why it's so crucial that we understand and that we know what redemption's all about. Redemption's just a word, unless you know that. See, your cults will use the word redemption. Your cults will use the name uh, uh, salvation. The cults will use all of this, but there is no bridging of that without the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Genesis 4, 3 through 7. Let's uh, do a little recap. Go back and read this one then and get a little added insight. Okay, here's this tremendous treatise. Uh, two boys, Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain brings an offering of the flock. The reason he brought an offering of the flock, this is what God had required. Blood will be given as the mark of atonement. On the other hand, Cain is the representation of the religious world in which we live, where they said, now look, there's plenty of paths to God. You're narrow-minded. This bloody religion is uh, it's pagan. This is, uh, this is based in heathen superstition, and uh, it's uh, absolutely, to a sophisticated, educated man, you don't expect us to accept that, do you? We're living in a generation where as rapidly, almost at blinding speed, uh, there's being created a unity...
of the church world and the, the dividing wall between Protestantism and Catholic, uh, the Catholics are falling. People have forgotten what a Protestant is. A Protestant is a protestant. That's what they are. We're living in the age when New Age religions being mixed in with the church. Uh, they're beginning to uh, uh, put down, they say, take down the walls. Well, uh, the walls are not walls that I put up. The walls are there that God put up. And I don't have any problem fellowshipping with anybody that will preach the gospel and will live clean. But I do have problems with people who will make statements like John Wesley White did in the, in the Prescott High School Auditorium. You just come forward and you can uh, reconfirm your confirmation. Well, that's garbage. That's not the gospel. I don't care if a million people come forward. You'll not be saved. That's not the gospel. Neither will it bring, because it's the preaching of the cross. That's foolishness to them that perish. So here's Cain. Cain says, I, I believe in God. This is uh, good enough. I don't have to do it his way. That's narrow-minded and bigoted. And I'm going to bring this. These are valuable things. These are the works of my hands. I've labored, grown these. Uh, they're beautiful. And I'm offering them to God. And God says, I'm, I'm rejecting that because that's not what I said for you to do. I accept uh, Abel. I reject Cain. Cain is upset. He's big time mad. And, uh, and he, uh, uh, the Bible says that he's uh, filled with anger. And God says, what are you, what are you anger, uh, angry about? If you do what I told you to do, worship me like I told you to worship with blood. Then things will be all right. But if you don't, then sin is like a, a wild animal crouching at the door. And if you do right, you rule over sin. But if you don't, sin's going to rule over you. So here we have uh, the revelation uh, of the blood. Let's go now to Exodus 30, verse 10. Remember, we're talking about at one moment. Man and God are separated. There's a great gulf between them because of man's sin. And that gulf is not bridged except one thing, and that's the blood, is the only element that God will accept as an atonement. The Old Testament is a sacrifice upon the altar. We're going to move on and find the full revelation uh, before we're finished this morning. Exodus 30, verse 10. Here's the, uh, uh, the sacrifice. This sacrifice is going to be given once a year. This is going to purge the sins of the nation, the nation of Israel as a people. Aaron's going to take the blood. He's going to touch the horns of the altar. And God says, that's what I'm going to accept. That's going to make an atonement for the sins of the people. Nothing else is going to make at one but that. We're going to move into some more imagery in just a little while. Exodus 32, verse 30. Okay, Moses, uh, it came to pass on that great day, Moses said, there's been a sin. He's going to go up before the Lord. He said, perhaps I can make an atonement for your sins. There's going to be an atonement. I'm going to bridge that gap which sin has separated. Remember, uh, the reason that uh, man and God are separated isn't because God don't love man. It isn't because God isn't God. It isn't because of, of religious terminology. It's not because of uh, religious institutions. because uh, of sin. Sin has separated man and God. It's never changed. It's the same today. It always will be until the final 
uh, trumpet sounds. That's going to be the problem. Is sin, and there's only one uh, atonement, and that's blood. Exodus 32, verse 30. Did I read that just now? Hebrews 9, 1 through 8. Now let's move in to the old te- uh, to the New Testament, because here we have the imagery. And remember, as Moses built a tabernacle, God says, "You be sure that your own creativity doesn't come into this, buddy." You do exactly what I told you to do. Build it exactly like I said to build it. And Moses didn't understand all that was involved in that. He didn't understand all the terminology, all the typology, all the issues that are going to be involved in eternal redemption. But he obeyed God. He built it exactly like God told him. And that becomes crucial in the outcome of time because we see that that's going to be the pattern of eternal things. This is going to be the pattern that God's going to use to teach us truth about Himself, truth about sin, truth about heaven, truth about eternity, truth about spiritual things. It's going to be this tabernacle that He's going to build. And so in Hebrews, we find out how important that is. Hebrews 9, 1 through 8. Here we have this uh, Hebrews' teaching. Paul's bringing them the tremendous truth that's involved in the tabernacle, how it relates to atonement. He gives us the uh, furniture of the tabernacle, gives us the ritual that's involved there, and then begins to move into the essence of what's in there. Because remember, what's inside the tabernacle? Somebody tell me what's inside the tabernacle that has any kind of import. Anybody? Uh, kin God's presence is in the Holy of Holies locked away in the Holy of Holies behind what? the veil that no one can enter into except the priest once a year goes in with the blood tokens of the sacrifice that is made And he's going to now secure the atonement for the people. Tradition tells us they tied a cord to his foot. The reason they tied a cord to his foot, if he went into the presence of God, his heart wasn't right, he was struck dead. So they had to have a way to get him out. They pulled him out with a cord. Might help our services if we had a little of that. Because man is barred from the presence of God. The only way he can go into the presence of God is a representative can go in only with blood. Not without blood, the scripture said. And here's the pattern now of a tremendous spiritual revelation that's going to be fulfilled because the way into the holiest, into the presence of God, was not made manifest. Now, all of this is fulfilled at Calvary. Uh, by at one month. I want uh, some, uh, uh, some more scriptures. Uh, maybe I could get over on my far left, Romans 5.11, uh, Mike Elsass, and who's this, Louis? Uh, Romans 3.24 and 25, and I need 2 Corinthians 5.18-19. It's Mac McCarty. All of this is fulfilled at Calvary, because on the Calvary, at one month was accomplished. Lock that word in your mind and uh, it's very interesting. I, I had to study through this because some of the commentators 
uh, we're not completely clear. There's a, there's a kind of a overlapping of thoughts and words and so on. But the central essence of it at one month has to do with the presence of God and it has to do with the reconciliation of God and man. Romans 5, verse 11. Okay, the King James, this word for reconciliation, the King James uses the word atonement. Both of them have exactly the same idea. They mean exactly the same thing because this is what atonement is. It is reconciliation between God and man. Romans 5.11 says, By this blood, this sacrifice of Calvary, we have this atonement. Romans 3, 24 and 25. Okay, Romans 3.25 uses this uh, word propitiation, and this literally means appeasement or sacrifice, and this is what gains uh, the at-one-ment. These are key scriptures that give you insight, understanding, and revelation uh, 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 through those key scriptures. 2 Corinthians 5.18-19. through 19. Okay, here we have it again as the picture of God and man at one. When I was a new convert, I was working at Reynolds Metals Company in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, I was uh, on a, uh, a swing shift with a Jack Mormon. How many of you know what a Jack Mormon is? Most Mormons are Jack Mormons, okay? And so uh, he's a professing Mormon, but he's not practicing this. But uh, he had been a teacher, an elder in the Mormon church, and the moment that I began to witness and testify uh, to him, he set his mind he's going to convert me to Mormonism. Now, uh, new converts don't know the Bible. You understand that. And so I knew that I was saved, but I, uh, uh, this guy's using salvation. This word's using all the terminology. This guy's quoting scripture. I don't know what the, this is all about. And so night after night, we're going about our duties, but we had a lot of time. Uh, that we didn't have to work, and this is a time that we could converse. And so he begins his process. He's trying to convert me to the Mormon church. Aren't you glad he didn't do that? Yeah. Incidentally, all new converts, uh, a, a cult member, generally will make contact with them within the first three weeks of their salvation. It's like they have a homing device. Come right in. The devil is in charge of false religion. So... Uh, he's working on me, uh, and so I'm, uh, I'm uh, in my uh, spare time. I'm in at home. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to combat this. I'm, and and so the interesting thing was that it began to dawn on me uh, that in all these words of verbiage and church and uh, and uh, uh, and all the doctrines that he was trying to put out, baptism for the dead and all this garbage, uh, it dawned on me as I began to read to try to conf confute this, was that they were, he wasn't ever using the, the, any kind of uh, statement about the blood. And so I began to then 
research from the blood. Well, I came from a, a gospel preaching church. They preached the gospel. I was really saved. My wife and I uh, responded to the, to the altar call. Uh, people were getting saved there. People were genuinely saved. But, you know, new converts don't know all about things of God. And so I'm wrestling with this, and suddenly I begin to focus in and home in on this uh, statement of the blood. I, I don't ever forget that I uh, begin to look and I begin to see that uh, he was uh, deficient in uh, one of his uh, 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 spiritual words that he was using, and that was blood. He said nothing about the blood. And uh, as I began to wrestle through this and I began to confute this, and I saw that this man didn't understand anything about the blood. Mormons do not understand uh, the sacrifice of Calvary's tree. They do not understand that. They may talk redemption. They may talk. And some of them who've been proselyted out of Christian churches, they may talk a little bit of verbiage because they learned that in a Christian church, not in a Mormon church. That's so you get a lot of pro proselytes out of, uh, out of uh, Protestant churches or, 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 or so on. And so as I'm wrestling with this, I'll never forget it was on a Sunday morning I had uh, finally came to the conclusion that it was the blood that brought me salvation. Nothing else. No, no church membership, nothing that I'd done, no good works, no good intention. Nothing but the blood had brought me salvation. And I remember waking with this total realization. And as I sat up in bed on this Sunday morning, uh, 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 because he'd been hassling me over this uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 of baptism for the dead. I couldn't explain that. I, I, I told him, I just know that it can't be right, that folks live, live like hell their whole life, and then you baptize from them after they die, and they're okay. I said, something's not right with that. I don't know why it's not right. It's just not right, okay? And so uh, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't uh, get that, and, uh, and I woke straight up in bed, and the words came to me, uh, add this phrase, how are they then baptized for the dead Christ if the dead rise not at all? And suddenly the whole context came into that and uh, tingling went all over me. I uh, listening to Oral Roberts. He used to be on the radio programs then. And uh, this tingling's all over me. I went to church that morning, responded to others. I don't even know what the sermon is about. Have no idea. Bowed down. Somebody laid their hands on my shoulder. And I got baptized gloriously in the Holy Ghost like very few people get baptized today that I see. I mean, tremendous. They, they left the building and told my wife, shut the doors if he ever comes out of this. He's, uh, snot was running. I'm, I'm prophesying. I'm weeping. It's, uh, I mean, it was a glorious thing. And it came because of that revelation of the blood of Jesus Christ. It wasn't doctrine. It wasn't fancy teaching. I got a hold of the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay. So... Uh, Let's get Matthew 27, 51, right in this uh, section right here. How am I doing? Who have got to hurry? Pete Baker, Matthew 27, 51. I want Luke 5, 17. Uh, Don Galati. Catherine, you get for me uh, John 3, 2. I want Acts 10, 38. Uh, uh, Bill Bronson. I want uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Uh, somebody. Rob Kennard. I want Ephesians 2, 18. Anybody? Help me. Ephesians 2, 18. Uh, Robert Chalmers, I want Psalm 51, 10 and 11. Uh, Janice, I want uh, Romans 5, 10. Uh, Philip. Okay, so now we're moving. Uh, we saw the Old Testament type. Uh, this Old Testament type is going to be fantastic. Man can only get into the presence of God uh, by a representation. And that representation is going to be the priest. Once a year goes in with blood. But now something fantastic is going to happen. 
Matthew 27, 51. Jesus dies on Calvary's tree. Read it out loud for us. 27, 51. Here's uh, Christ dies on Calvary. Now the blood uh, of which the Old Testament atonement is only a type, that blood now has been shed. The moment that he gives up the ghost, uh, this four-inch thick veil of the temple is rent from the top to the bottom as no man could do that. This is a fantastic thing. It's recorded in the Scripture, I think, twice, if not three times, uh, of this, uh, this outstanding thing. And so... What did Brenda read? That the priests went in, into the holy place, because the way into the holiest was not yet made manifest. Now, the veil is rent, and the presence of the Lord is open for all, and the benefits thereof. And this is what a believer has, uh, is the presence of God in a practical application. Luke five seventeen. What's that going to mean? Jesus is manifestation uh, as he ministered as a man of the presence of the Lord and virtue, the Bible says, or power, it's translated in the New King James, virtue, something that's in him, which is of the presence of God, goes out and they're healed. It means something to have the presence of the Lord. It doesn't, it, it doesn't just mean that you're religious and you have some religious t- terminology and, uh, and you're a fringe lunatic or some kind running around loose. It means that God's power and presence is moving through you. And so it ought to manifest. Hebrews 10, 19 and 20. I didn't give that? I made a mistake this morning. Somebody would like to get that for us. Samantha, would you get it for us? Loud and clear voice. Okay, here we have the veil. Uh, the Scripture says this is actually, the, the veil is a type of the flesh of Jesus Christ. But when that flesh was rent and precious blood was poured out on Calvary's cross, the way into the holies was made manifest. And each of us can now have the presence of God. If you don't have the presence of God, it's not God's fault. If you'll take care of the sin problem, you can have the presence of God. Now, uh, we want to uh, uh, have Acts 10.38. For God was with him. What does that mean? That means the presence of God is uh, uh, moving through a human personality exactly what it means. That's why Dennis and Anna and their team, the Keppels, go out and their workers out to Peddler's Pass because they believe that. They believe that they can have the presence of God and that presence of God, not their own virtue, not their technique, not their brilliance, but the presence of God is going to go from them because they believe it's going to heal the sick. That's why they do that. The presence of God. At one moment, okay? John 3, 2, Catherine.
except God be with him. You see, the presence of God is not a doctrine. It's an actuality. It's a reality. And it ought to have some visible uh, demonstration. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, quickly. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Mark 16 said they went forth, preached everywhere the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. So let's have then uh, Psalms 51, 10 and 11. Here's the presence of God. Who's reading that? Oh, Janice has such a soft little voice I can't even hear. Couldn't even locate it. Okay, take not your Holy Spirit from me. The presence of God is manifested through the Holy Spirit, which the Bible says every believer has the right to the presence of God by the Holy Spirit. In Romans 5.10, Philip. All right. Uh, salvation uh, is by atonement. Atonement is uh, is one of the reasons that the blood of Jesus Christ is absolutely precious. The Lord bless you. We're out of time, and uh, 